0: Section 20 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. The Slepervox recording is in the public domain. Appendix Part 3. Letters, Telegrams, and Speeches, October 1845 to December 1855. Williamson Durley, Springfield, October 3, 1845. When I saw you at home, it was agreed that I should write to you and your brother Madison, Until I then saw you, I was not aware of your being what is generally called an abolitionist, or, as you call yourself, a liberty man, though I well knew there were many such in your country. I was glad to hear that you intended to attempt to bring about, at the next election in Putnam, a union of the Whigs proper and such of the liberty men as are Whigs in principle on all questions, save only that of slavery.' so far as i can perceive by such union neither party need yield anything on the point in difference between them if the whig abolitionists of new york had voted with us last fall mr clay would now be president whig principles in the ascendant and texas not annexed whereas by the division all that either had at stake in the contest was lost and indeed it was extremely probable beforehand that such would be the result As I always understood, the Liberty Men deprecated the annexation of Texas extremely, and this being so, why they should refuse to cast their votes so as to prevent it, even to me, seemed wonderful. What was their process of reasoning, I can only judge from what a single one of them told me. It was this. We are not to do evil that good may come. This general proposition is doubtless correct, but did it apply? If by your votes you could have prevented the extension, etc., of slavery, would it not have been good and not evil, so to have used your votes, even though it involved the casting of them for a slaveholder? By the fruit the tree is to be known. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. If the fruit of electing Mr. Clay would have been to prevent the extension of slavery, could the act of electing have been evil? But I will not argue further. I perhaps ought to say that, individually, I never was much interested in the Texas question. I never could see much good to come of annexation inasmuch as they were already a free Republican people on our own model. On the other hand, I never could very clearly see how the annexation would augment the evil of slavery. It always seemed to me that slaves would be taken there in about equal numbers, with or without annexation and if more were taken because of annexation, still there would be just so many the fewer left where they were taken from. It is probably true to some extent that with annexation some slaves might be sent to Texas and continued in slavery that otherwise might have been liberated. To whatever extent this may be true, I think annexation an evil. I hold it to be a paramount duty to us in the free states, due to the union of the states, and perhaps to liberty itself, paradox though it may seem, to let the slavery of the other states alone. While on the other hand, I hold it to be equally clear that we should never knowingly lend ourselves, directly or indirectly, to prevent that slavery from dying a natural death, to find new places for it to live in when it can no longer exist in the old. Of course, I am not now considering what would be our duty in cases of insurrection among the slaves. To recur to the Texas question, I understand the Liberty men to have viewed annexation as a much greater evil than I ever did, and I would like to convince you, if I could, that they could have prevented it if they had chosen. I intend this letter for you and Madison together, and if you and he or either shall think fit to drop me a line, I shall be pleased. Yours with respect. A. Lincoln. Original owned by C. W. Durley, Princeton, Illinois. Dr. Robert bowle Lakin, Illinois. Springfield, January 7, 1846. Dear Doctor, Since I saw you last fall, I have often thought of writing you, as it was then understood I would. But, on reflection, I have always found that I had nothing new to tell you. All has happened as I then told you I expected it would. Bakers declining, Hardin's taking the track, and so on. If Hardin and I stood precisely equal, if neither of us had been to Congress, or if we both had, it would not only accord with what I have always done, for the sake of peace, to give way to him, and I expect I should do it. That I can voluntarily postpone my pretensions, when they are no more than equal to those in which they are postponed, you have yourself seen." But to yield to Harden under present circumstances seems to me as nothing else than yielding to one who would gladly sacrifice me altogether. This I would rather not submit to. That Hardin is talented, energetic, usually generous and magnanimous, I have before this affirmed to you, and do not now deny. You know that my only argument is that turnabout is fair play. This he practically, at least, denies." If it would not be taxing you too much, I wish you would write me, telling me the aspect of things in your country, or rather your district, and also send the names of some of your Whig neighbors, to whom I might with propriety write. Unless I can get someone to do this, Hardin, with his old franking list, will have the advantage of me. My reliance for a fair shake, and I want nothing more, in your county, is chiefly on you, because of your position and standing, and because I am acquainted with so few others. Let me hear from you soon. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Original owned by Dr. Robert Bowl Lakin, Illinois. John Bennett, Springfield, January 15, 1846. Friend John. Nathan Dresser is here, and speaks as though the contest between Hardin and me is to be doubtful in Menard County. I know he is candid, and this alarms me some. I asked him to tell me the names of the men that were going strong for Hardin. He said Morris was about as strong as any. Now tell me, is Morris going it openly? You remember you wrote me that he would be neutral." Nathan also said that some man who he could not remember had said lately that Menard County was going to decide the contest, and that made the contest very doubtful. Do you know who that was? Don't fail to write me instantly on receiving, telling me all, particularly the names of those who are going strong against me. Yours, as ever, A. Lincoln. Original, owned by E. R. Elchin, Petersburg, Illinois. Springfield, January twenty-first, 1846. N.J. Rockwell. Dear Sir, you perhaps know that General Hardin and I have a contest for the Whig nomination for Congress for this district. He has had a turn, and my argument is, turnabout is fair play. I shall be pleased if this strikes you as a sufficient argument. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. James Burden, Jacksonville, Illinois. Springfield, April 26, 1846 James Burden, Esquire Dear Sir, I thank you for the promptness with which you answered my letter from Bloomington. I also thank you for the frankness with which you comment upon a certain part of my letter, because that comment affords me an opportunity of trying to express myself better than I did before, seeing, as I do, that in that part of my letter you have not understood me as I intended to be understood in speaking of the dissatisfaction of men who yet mean to do no wrong etc i meant no special application of what i said to the Whigs of morgan or of morgan and scott i only had in my mind the fact that previous to general hardin's withdrawal some of his friends and some of mine had become a little warm and I felt, and meant to say, that for them now to meet face to face and converse together was the best way to efface any remnant of unpleasant feeling, if any such existed. I did not suppose that General Hardin's friends were in any greater need of having their feelings corrected than mine were. Since I saw you at Jacksonville, I have had no more suspicion of the Whigs of Morgan than of those of any other part of the district." I write this only to try to remove any impression that I distrust you and the other whigs of your country. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Original owned by Mrs. Mary Burden Tiffany, Springfield, Illinois. James Burden, Jacksonville, Illinois. Springfield, May 7, 1846. James Burden, Esquire. Dear Sir, it is a matter of high moral obligation, if not of necessity, for me to attend the Coles and Edwards courts. I have some cases in both of them, in which the parties have my promise and are depending upon me. The court commences in Coles on the second Monday, and in Edgar on the third. Your court in Morgan commences on the fourth Monday, and it is my purpose to be with you then and make a speech. I mention the Coles and Edgar courts in order that if I should not reach Jacksonville at the time named, you may understand the reason why. I do not, however, think there is much danger of my being detained, as I shall go with a purpose not to be, and consequently shall engage in no new cases that might delay me. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Original owned by Mrs. Mary Burden Tiffany, Springfield, Illinois. Report of speech delivered at Worcester, Massachusetts, on September twelfth, 1848, from the Boston Advertiser. Mr. Kellogg then introduced to the meeting the Honorable Abram Lincoln, Whig member of Congress from Illinois, a representative of Free Soil. Mr. Lincoln has a very tall and thin figure, with an intellectual face, showing a searching mind and a cool judgment. He spoke in a clear and cool and very eloquent manner for an hour and a half, carrying the audience with him in his able arguments and brilliant illustrations, only interrupted by warm and frequent applause. He began by expressing a real feeling of modesty in addressing an audience this side of the mountains, a part of the country where, in the opinion of the people of his section, everybody was supposed to be instructed and wise. But he had devoted his attention to the question of the coming presidential election, and was not unwilling to exchange with all whom he might the ideas to which he had arrived. He then began to show the fallacy of some of the arguments against General Taylor, making his chief theme the fashionable statement of all those who oppose him, the old Locofocos as well as the new, that he has no principles, and that the Whig party have abandoned their principles by adopting him as their candidate he maintained that general taylor occupied a high and unexceptionable whig ground and took for his first instance and proof of this statement in the allison letter with regard to the bank tariff rivers and harbors etc that the will of the people should produce its own results without executive influence the principle that the people should do what under the constitution they please is a whig principle All that, General Taylor, is not only to consent, but to appeal to the people to judge and act for themselves. And this was no new doctrine for Whigs. It was the platform on which they had fought all their battles, the resistance of executive influence, and the principle of enabling people to frame the government according to their will. General Taylor consents to be the candidate, and to assist the people to do what they think to be their duty and think to be best in their natural affairs. But because he don't want to tell what we ought to do, he is accused of having no principles. The Whigs here maintained for years that neither the influence, the duress, or the prohibition of the executive should control the legitimately expressed will of the people. And now, on that very ground, General Taylor says that he should use the power given him by the people to do, to the best of his judgment, the will of the people, he is accused of want of principle and of inconsistency in position. Mr. Lincoln proceeded to examine the absurdity of an attempt to make a platform or creed for a national party to all parts of which all must consent and agree, when it was clearly the intention and the true philosophy of our government that in Congress all opinions and principles should be represented and that when the wisdom of all had been compared and united, the will of the majority should be carried out. On this ground, he conceived, and the audience seemed to go with him, that General Taylor held correct, sound Republican principles. Mr. Lincoln then passed to the subject of slavery in the States, saying that the people of Illinois agreed entirely with the people of Massachusetts on this subject, except perhaps that they did not keep so constantly thinking about it. All agreed that slavery was an evil, but that we were not responsible for it and cannot affect it in states of this union where we do not live. But the question of the extension of slavery to new territories of this country is a part of our responsibility and care, and is under our control. In opposition to this, Mr. L. believed that the self-named Free Soil Party was far behind the Whigs. Both parties opposed the extension. As he understood it, this new party had no principle except this opposition. If their platform held any other, it was in such a general way that it was like the pair of pantaloons the Yankee peddler offered for sale, large enough for any man, small enough for any boy. They therefore had taken a position calculated to break down their single important declared object. They were working for the election of either General Cass or General Taylor. The Speaker then went on to show, clearly and eloquently, the danger of extension of slavery likely to result from the election of General Cass. To unite with those who annexed the new territory to prevent the extension of slavery in that territory seemed to him to be in the highest degree absurd and ridiculous. Suppose these gentlemen succeed in electing Mr. Van Buren. They had no specific means to prevent the extension of slavery to New Mexico and California. And General Taylor, he confidently believed, would not encourage it and would not prohibit its restriction. But if General Cass was elected, he felt certain that the plans of further extension of territory would be encouraged, and those of the extension of slavery would meet no check. The free soil men, in claiming that name, indirectly attempts a deception by implying that Whigs were not free soil men in declaring that they would do their duty and leave the consequences to god merely gave an excuse for taking a course they were not able to maintain by a fair and full argument to make this declaration did not show what their duty was if it did we should have no use for judgment we might as well be made without intellect and when divine or human law does not clearly point out what is our duty we have no means of finding out what it is by using our most intelligent judgment of the consequences. If there were divine law or human law for voting for Martin Van Buren, or if a fair examination of the consequences and first reasoning would show that voting for him would bring about the ends they pretended to wish, then he would give up the argument. But since there was no fixed law on the subject, and since the whole probable result of their action would be an assistance in electing General Cass, he must say that they were behind the Whigs in their advocacy of the freedom of the soil. Mr. Lincoln proceeded to rally the Buffalo Convention for forbearing to say anything, after all the previous declarations of those members who were formerly Whigs, on the subject of the Mexican War, because the Van Burens had been known to have supported it, He declared that, of all of the parties asking the confidence of the country, this new one had less of principle than any other. He wondered whether it was still the opinion of these free-soil gentlemen, as declared in the Whereas at Buffalo, that the Whig and Democratic parties were both entirely dissolved and absorbed into their own body. Had the Vermont election given them any light? They had calculated on making as great an impression in that state as in any part of the Union, and there their attempts had been wholly ineffectual. Their failure there was a greater success than they would find in any other part of the Union. Mr. Lincoln went on to say that he honestly believed that all those who wished to keep up the character of the Union who did not believe in enlarging our field but in keeping our fences where they are and cultivating our present possessions making it a garden improving the morals and education of the people devoting the administrations to this purpose all real whigs friends of good honest government the race was ours He had opportunities of hearing from almost every part of the Union from reliable sources, and had not heard of a country in which we had not received accessions from other parties. If the true Whigs come forward and join these new friends, they need not have a doubt. We had a candidate whose personal character and principles he had already described, whom he could not eulogize if he would. General Taylor had been constantly, perseveringly, quietly standing up, doing his duty, and asking no praise or reward for it. He was, and must be, just the man to whom the interests, principles, and prosperity of the country might be safely entrusted. He had never failed in anything he had undertaken, although many of his duties had been considered almost impossible." mr lincoln then went into a terse though rapid review of the origin of the mexican war and the connection of the administration and general taylor with it from which he deduced a strong appeal to the whigs present to do their duty in the support of general taylor and closed with the warmest aspirations for and confidence in a deserved success At the close of this truly masterly and convincing speech, the audience gave three enthusiastic cheers for Illinois, and three more for the eloquent Whig member from that state. J. Gillespie Springfield, Illinois, May 19, 1849 Dear Gillespie, Butterfield will be Commissioner of the General Land Office unless prevented by strong and speedy efforts. Ewing is for him, and he is only not appointed yet because old Zach hangs fire. I have reliable information of this. Now, if you agree with me that his appointment would dissatisfy rather than gratify the Whigs of this state, that it would slacken their energies in future contests, that his appointment in 41 is an old sore with them which they will not patiently have reopened, in a word that his appointment now would be a fatal blunder to the administration and our political men here in Illinois, write Mr. Crittenden to that effect. He can control the matter. Were you to write Ewing, I fear the President would never hear of your letter. This may be mere suspicion. You might directly to old Zack. You will be the best judge of the propriety of that. Not a moment's time is to be lost." Let this confidential accept with Mr. Edwards and a few others, whom you know I would trust, just as I do you. Yours, as ever, A. Lincoln. Original, owned by Mrs. Josephine G. Prickett, Edwardsville, Illinois. Secretary of Interior, Washington, D.C., Springfield, Illinois, June 3, 1849. Honorable Secretary of Interior, Dear Sir, Vandalia, the receiver's office at which place is the subject of the within, is not in my district, and I have been much perplexed to express any preference between Dr. Stapp and Mr. Remon. If any one man is better qualified for such an office than all others, Dr. Stapp is that man. Still, I believe a large majority of the Whigs of the district prefer Mr. Remon, who also is a good man. Perhaps the papers on file will enable you to judge better than I can." THE WRITERS OF THE WITHIN ARE GOOD MEN, RESIDING WITHIN THE LAND DISTRICT. YOUR OBEDIENT SERVANT, A. LINCOLN. ORIGINAL OWNED BY C. F. GUNTHER, CHICAGO, ILLINOIS. J. GILLESPIE, SPRINGFIELD, JULY thirteenth, 1849. DEAR GILLESPIE, MR. EDWARDS IS UNQUESTIONABLY OFFENDED WITH ME IN CONNECTION WITH THE MATTER OF THE GENERAL LAND OFFICE. HE WROTE A LETTER AGAINST ME WHICH WAS filed AT THE DEPARTMENT. The better part of one's life consists of his friendships, and of them, mine with Mr. Edwards was one of the most cherished. I have not been false to it. At a word, I could have had the office any time before the department was committed to Mr. Butterfield. At least, Mr. Ewing and the President say as much. That word I forbore to speak, partly for other reasons, but chiefly for Mr. Edwards' sake losing the office that he might gain it i was always for but to lose his friendship by the effort for him would oppress me very much were i not sustained by the utmost consciousness of rectitude i first determined to be an applicant unconditionally on the second of june and i did so then upon being informed by a telegraphic dispatch that the question was narrowed down to mr b and myself and that the cabinet had postponed the appointment three weeks for my benefit Not doubting that Mr. Edwards was wholly out of the question, I nevertheless would not then have become an applicant, had I supposed he would thereby be brought to suspect me of treachery to him. Two or three days afterwards, a conversation with Levi Davis convinced me Mr. Edwards was dissatisfied, but I was then too far in to get out. His own letter, written on the 25th of April, after I had fully informed him of all that had passed, up to within a few days of that time gave assurance i had that entire confidence from him which i felt my uniform and strong friendship for him entitled me to among other things it says whatever course your judgment may dictate is proper to be pursued shall never be accepted to by me i also had had a letter from washington saying chambers of the republic had brought a rumor then that mr e had declined in my favor which rumor i judged came from mr e himself as i had not then breathed of his letter to any living creature in saying i had never before the twenty second of june determined to be an applicant unconditionally i mean to admit that before then i had said substantially i would take the office rather than it should be lost to the state or given to one in the state whom the whigs did not want but I aver that in every instance in which I spoke of myself, I intended to keep, and now believe I did keep, Mr. E above myself. Mr. Edwards's first suspicion was that I had allowed Baker to overreach me, as his friend, in behalf of Don Morrison. I knew this was a mistake, and the result has proved it. I understand his view now is that if I had gone to open war with Baker, I could have ridden him down and had the thing all my own way. I believe no such thing. With Baker and some strong man from the military tract and elsewhere for Morrison, and we and some strong man from the Wabash and elsewhere for Mr. E., it was not possible for either to succeed. I believed this in March, and I know it now. The only thing which gave either any chance was the very thing Baker and I proposed, an adjustment with themselves. You may wish to know how Butterfield finally beat me. I cannot tell you particulars now, but will when I see you. In the meantime, let it be understood I am not greatly dissatisfied. I wish the offer had been so bestowed as to encourage our friends in future contests, and I regret exceedingly Mr. Edward's feelings towards me. These two things away, I should have no regrets. At least I think I would not. Write me soon. Your friend as ever, A. Lincoln original owned by mrs josephine g prickett edwardsville illinois dr william fithian danville illinois dear doctor your letter of the ninth was received a day or two ago the notes and mortgages you enclosed me were duly received i also got the original blanchard mortgage from antrim campbell with whom blanchard had left it for you i got a degree of foreclosure on the whole but owing to there being no redemption on the sale to be under the blanchard mortgage the court allowed mobley till the first of march to pay the money before advertising for sale stuart was empowered by mobley to appear for him and i had to take such decree as he would consent to or none at all I cast the matter about in my mind and concluded that, as I could not get a decree now, would put the accrued interest at interest, and thereby more than match the fact of throwing the Blanchard debt back from twelve to six percent. It was better to do it. This is the present state of the case. I can well enough understand and appreciate your suggestions about the land office at Danville, but in my present condition I can do nothing. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln original owned by dr p h fithian springfield illinois springfield january 11 1851 c hoyt esquire my dear sir our case is decided against us the decision was announced this morning very sorry but there is no help the history of the case since it came here is this on friday morning last Mr. Joy filed his papers and entered his motion for a mandamus, and urged me to take up the motion as soon as possible. I already had the points and authorities sent me by you and Mr. Goodrich, but had not studied them. I began preparing as fast as possible. The evening of the same day I was again urged to take up the case. I refused, on the ground that I was not ready, and on which plea I also got off over Saturday. But on Monday the 14th I had to go into it. We occupied the whole day, I using the large part. I made every point and used every authority sent me by yourself and by Mr. Goodrich, and in addition all the points I could think of and all the authorities I could find myself. When I closed the argument on my part, a large package was handed me, which proved to be the plat you sent me. The court received it of me, but it was not different from the plat already on the record. I do not think I could ever have argued the case better than I did. I did nothing else but prepare to argue and argue this case from Friday morning till Monday evening. Very sorry for the result, but I do not think it could have been prevented. Your friend, as ever, A. Lincoln. Original owned by family of Mr. Ned Ames Higgins, Washington, D.C. November 4, 1851. Dear Mother, Chapman tells me he wants you to go and live with him. If I were you, I would try it a while. If you get tired of it, as I think you will not, you can return to your own home. Chapman feels very kindly to you, and I have no doubt he will make your situation very pleasant. Sincerely, Your Son, A. Lincoln From Herndon's Life of Lincoln Addressed John D. Johnston, Charleston, Coles County, Illinois Springfield, November 25, 1851 John D. Johnston Dear Brother, Your letter of the twenty second is just received. Your proposal about selling the east forty acres of land is all that I want or could claim for myself, but I am not satisfied with it on mother's account. I want her to have her living, and I feel that it is my duty, to some extent, to see that she is not wronged. She had a right of dower, that is, the use of one-third for life, in the other two forties, but it seems she has already let you take that hook and line. She now has the use of the whole of the East Forty as long as she lives, and if it be sold, of course she is entitled to the interest on all the money it brings as long as she lives. But you propose to sell it for $300, take 100 away with you, and leave her 200 at 8%, making her the enormous sum of $16 a year. Now, if you are satisfied with treating her in that way, I am not." It is true that you are to have that 40 for $200 at mother's death, but you are not to have it before. I am confident that land can be made to produce for mother for at least $30 a year, and I cannot, to oblige any living person, consent that she shall be put on an allowance of $16 a year. Yours, etc., A. Lincoln. Original owned by Mr. William H. Lambert, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The superscription of the letter is as here printed, but the caption omits the town and state. Pekin, May twelfth, 1853. Mr. Joshua R. Stanford. Sir, I hope the subject matter of this letter will appear a sufficient apology to you for the liberty I, a total stranger, take in addressing you. The persons here holding two lots under a conveyance made by you as the attorney of Daniel M. Bailey now nearly twenty-two years ago, are in great danger of losing the lots, and very much, perhaps all, is to depend on the testimony you give as to whether you did or did not account to Bailey for the proceeds received by you on this sale of the lots. I, therefore, as one of the council, beg of you to fully refresh your recollection by any means in your power before the time you may be called on to testify. If persons should come about you and show a disposition to pump you on the subject, it may be no more than prudent to remember that it may be possible they design to misrepresent you and embarrass the real testimony you may ultimately give. It may be six months or a year before you are called on to testify. Respectfully, A. Lincoln Original, owned by Homer Stanford, of Alton, Illinois Confidential Springfield, September 7, 1854. Honorable J. M. Palmer. Dear Sir, You know how anxious I am that this Nebraska measure shall be rebuked and condemned everywhere. Of course I hope something from your position, yet I do not expect you to do anything which may be wrong in your own judgment, nor would I have you do anything personally injurious to yourself. You are, and always have been, honestly and sincerely, a Democrat and I know how painful it must be to an honest, sincere man to be urged by his party to the support of a measure which, in his conscience, he believes to be wrong. You have had a severe struggle with yourself, and you have determined not to swallow the wrong. Is it not just to yourself that you should, in a few public speeches, state your reasons and thus justify yourself? I wish you would, and yet I say don't do it if you think it will injure you. You may have given your word to vote for Major Harris, and if so, of course you will stick to it. But allow me to suggest that you should avoid speaking of this, for it probably would induce some of your friends, in like manner, to cast their votes. You understand. And now, let me beg your pardon for obtruding this letter upon you, to whom I have ever been opposed in politics. Had your party omitted to make Nebraska a test of party fidelity, you probably would have been the Democratic candidate for Congress in the district. You deserved it, and I believe it would have been given you. In that case, I should have been quite happy that Nebraska was to be rebuked at all events. I still should have voted for the Whig candidate, but I should have made no speeches, written no letters, and you would have been elected by at least a thousand majority. Yours truly, A. Lincoln Original owned by Mr. William H. Lambert, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Clinton, DeWitt County, November 10, 1854. Mr. Charles Hoyt. Dear Sir, You used to express a good deal of partiality for me, and if you are still so, now is the time. Some friends here are really for me for the U.S. Senate, and I should be very grateful if you could make a mark for me among your members. Please write me at all events, giving me the names, post offices, and political position of members round about you. Direct to Springfield. Let this be confidential. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Original owned by Mrs. C. L. Hoyt of Aurora, Illinois. Copy. Springfield, December 1st, 1854. J. Gillespie, Esquire. My dear sir, I have really got it into my head to try to be United States Senator, and if I could have your support, my chances would be reasonably good. But I know and acknowledge that you have as just claims to the place as I have, and therefore I cannot ask you to yield to me if you are thinking of becoming a candidate yourself. If, however, you are not, then I should like to be remembered affectionately by you, and also to have you make a mark for me with the anti-Nebraska members down your way. If you know and have no objection to tell— Let me know whether Trumbull intends to make a push. If he does, I suppose the two men in St. Clair, and one or both in Madison, will be for him. We have the legislature, clearly enough, on joint ballot, but the Senate is very close, and Cullum told me today that the Nebraska men will stave off the election if they can. Even if we get into joint vote, we shall have difficulty to unite our forces. Please write me and let this be confidential. Your Friend as Ever, A. Lincoln, original owned by Mrs. Josephine Gillespie Prickett of Edwardsville, Illinois. Sanford, Porter, and Stryker, New York City, Springfield, March 10, 1855. Messieurs Sanford, Porter, and Stryker, New York. Gentlemen, yours of the fifth is received, as also was that of the 15th December last, enclosing bond of Clift to pray. When I received the bond, I was dabbling in politics and, of course, neglecting business. Having since been beaten out, I have gone to work again. As I do not practice in Rushville, I today open a correspondence with Henry E. Drummond, Esquire of Beardstown, Illinois, with the view of getting the job into his hands. He is a good man if he will undertake it. Write me whether I shall do this or return the bond to you. Very respectfully, A. Lincoln Original, owned by the Sceniatalus Library, Sceniatalus, New York December 13, 1855 Dear Sir, You will confer a favor on me if you will send me the Congressional Globe during the present session. Please have it directed to me. I will pay for the same when you visit your family. Yours respectfully, A. Lincoln Original, formerly owned by Colonel Thomas Donaldson Loaned by Stan V. Henkels of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania End of section 20